Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, this is God's word. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Is God finally finished with us? This might be a question that an individual or a community finds themselves asking after some sin, which has been followed by a severe discipline of the Lord. Have we finally struck out so that there is no more compassion, no more favor to be shown towards us? Is God finally finished with us? This is a question that Israel might have asked at any point in its long history through the Old Testament. And you can think about the various events that happened to Israel and how there were so many opportunities for Israel to ask this question, is God finally at this point finished with us? After having just recently passed through the Red Sea waters, they rebel at the waters of Meribah. At Sinai, they worship a golden calf, as though on their very honeymoon with the Lord, where the Lord covenants with Israel, she goes and commits adultery. Entering the wilderness, brought to the edge of the promised land, they refuse to enter it. Their hearts are filled with fear, and they do not believe, and they do not enter the land. Is the Lord finished with us? There's the rebellion of Korah against Moses and Aaron, and they and their households are consumed. And the next day, the people complain against Moses that on his account these men have perished and the the anger of the Lord burns against them again and, and consumes many. And again, we could ask the question, is the Lord finished with us? 
Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel, and he's not able to do it, but he finds another way to cause Israel to stumble through idolatry and immorality. And there is the matter at Baal of Peor. Is the Lord finished with his people? There is the long cycle of the judges. Through the book of Judges, judge after judge, there is the people who uh, commit sin, who are disciplined, who are put under the hand of an enemy, and they call out to the Lord for mercy, and he delivers them. And yet at the end of the book, you find Israel being described in language reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah and of Ai, the the second city, the city after uh, Jericho in the conquest, that that Israel has become the uh, the new rebellious Canaanites and the new Sodom and Gomorrah. Is the Lord finished with us? Rebellious king after rebellious king ends in exile. Is the Lord finished with us? Psalm 85 gives an answer to this question. And its answer is, no, not only does the Lord not cast off his people, but he even speaks peace to them. The Lord speaks peace to you, even after you have committed folly, even after you have been foolish, even after you have done something which brings about God's fatherly displeasure and brings you into a a difficult season in which you are, uh, in which you find your fellowship and communion with God is interrupted in a way and it becomes a, a bitter season. God has not cast you off if you are in Christ by faith in his son. He is not finished with you. In fact, he even speaks a word of peace to you. So let's look together at Psalm 85. We can take it under uh, three three sections. We'll we'll spend the most time in the, the last section We can look at verses 1 through 3 as a reflection of God's past faithfulness towards his people. In verses 4 through 7, there is the prayer, this petition for God to uh, again show that favor that he has historically shown so often before. And then in verses 9 through 13, you have a forward look into the peace that awaits God's people. So, taking this together, it can be past, present, and future. Past deliverance, present calamity, and then future peace. And verse 8 is that, that hinge, that transition where the psalmist hears and listens for a word from the Lord and receives that word as being a word of peace. So, first in verses 1 through 3, you find the psalmist recounting God's faithfulness to his people. O Lord, you showed your favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. There is a a looking back and a remembering 
of God's faithful care for his people. And this is going to become the foundation and the basis for a yet future hope for the present circumstance. I know that this isn't just an ordinary calamity that the people are, are experiencing as though they're, they're an innocent party in all of this. That it's, it's specifically because of their sin, it's specifically because of their iniquity, that they are experiencing this bitter consequence, this, this ruptured relationship with the Lord in which he is directing uh, a fury towards them. And yet the psalmist recalls that he turned away from that fury. He turned away from his burning anger. He forgave his people of their sins. And he did this even at a, a national level that he restored or turned the captivity of Jacob. And he showed favor to the land. And so for us, this also becomes one of the ways that we find courage in these times where we undergo a severe discipline is that we look back to God's history of faithfully showing mercy to his people. That the psalmist could look back on the various incidences that that we mentioned in the beginning of the sermon. The the whole history of Israel is, is full of of instances where the Lord showed mercy on his people, and the psalmist can look back on those things and say that God turned away from his anger. Yet we in the New Testament era are so much more privileged to look back not only on the mercy that God showed under the Old Testament to forgive sins, but we can look back on the deliverance, the forgiveness of sins that has come through Jesus Christ. We can look back at the cross and say that in him, God has turned away his anger from his people. He has shown favor. And so this background then becomes foundational for a present comfort. And the present petition that's offered to the Lord. Verses 4 through 7, Restore us, O God of our salvation. And cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. There is a pleading with God to to be consistent with how he has dealt with Israel in the past. How he has dealt with his people in the past. That in the past, yes, he showed anger, but he turned from it. And now in the present, to do so yet again. To not be done with his people, but to again show mercy towards them. This is an anguished prayer, but it's also a confident prayer. It's anguished in that it asks the question, will you be angry with us forever? In, in the present suffering, the, the, the question comes to mind, is it always going to be like this? Will there ever be a, a refreshment? Will there ever again be uh, a showing of the Lord's countenance to me in a favorable way? Or is it always going to be like this interminably? Forever? To all generations? Yet it's also a prayer of confidence as the psalmist begins and closes by acknowledging that God is the God of salvation. 
Restore us, O God, of our salvation, in verse 4. In verse 7, show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So that even as these anguished cries are, are poured out by God's people, poured out by the psalmist, and poured out by us at times, it comes couched, sandwiched between expressions of confidence that the Lord will, in fact, turn away from his anger, that he will show his salvation to us. So for us in these seasons where we do face those, those dark times where it seems that God has hidden from us his smile, and perhaps there has been some sin that has interrupted your communion with God or for which you are suffering a very difficult, severe, material uh, consequences, lasting consequences that you will endure perhaps for the rest of your life. Will God show his favor again? The psalm teaches us that yes, yes, we can cry out to God with anguished heart, but we also cry out to him with confidence, acknowledging that he is the God of our salvation. And that brings us now to the third part of the psalm, after moving through verse 8, which is that, that hinge, that, that answer to the prayer, having poured out this anguished prayer, now waiting for a reply, and the, the answer is given, that the Lord will not speak anger or wrath, the Lord will not chide forever, but rather that he will speak peace to his people. He will put away his anger. And we have a description of what that peace looks like then in verses 9 through 13. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. We have in this description a, a, a wonderful picture of life as God intended it within his kingdom. A, a wonderful picture of peace in the presence of God. We find in verse 10 that loving kindness and truth meet together. We find coming from every direction these, these covenant qualities being reunited. So consider, consider the imagery, the poetic imagery of this portion of the psalm. And consider especially the, the spatial imagery that it communicates. On a horizontal level, in, in, in the image of, of two people who have been separated and who come together after a long time apart, loving kindness and truth, or steadfast love and faithfulness, meet together. Steadfast love and faithfulness, that quality that God revealed to Moses after the rebellion at Sinai. That he is a God abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. These two qualities now, now come together as though, though apart and, and alienated from the, the sufferer, are now joined together. But then there's an even closer union that is described subsequently. 
righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And so not only do these, these two uh, qualities come together, steadfast love and faithfulness, but now righteousness and peace also come. And they don't just meet together, but they even greet each other with a kiss. In our culture, we don't greet one another in this way, but maybe some of you have traveled to other countries and, and you've seen this custom practice where, where people will uh, greet each other with a kiss We could perhaps say shake hands, although that falls short of the tender image of what the psalm describes. And so on the, the, from east and west, north and south, on, the, on a horizontal plane, you have, it's like you have these, these covenant qualities, these covenant virtues meeting together after a long estrangement. But then you also have the vertical dimension. Verse 11, truth springs from the earth. And righteousness looks down from heaven. So you have the the earth uh, producing faithfulness and then righteousness looking down from heaven as though earth and heaven themselves are now being reconciled to each other as they both exhibit these qualities. As one writer comments, it's as though the earth becomes carpeted with faithfulness and canopied with righteousness. And again, you have a vertical dimension in in verse 12, as you see the Lord who sits enthroned above the heavens, giving what is good, and then the land from below yielding its produce. So you have what we might call the the horizontal, the reunion between steadfast love and faithfulness, between righteousness and peace. You have the vertical as faithfulness and righteousness spring from earth and heaven. You have the Lord above giving what is good and the land below giving its, its harvests. And then in verse 13, you have what we might call the, the personal or the covenantal. That God himself will come and be in the land. That glory in verse 9 will dwell in the land. And in verse 13, the Lord himself will enter and take up residence among his people as he approaches, as his footsteps approach, having had a way made for him by righteousness. How are we to understand this beautiful description of of kingdom life? I would like to try to unpack it in three, three ways. First, Christ's first advent... Secondly, our our present situation. And then thirdly, we understand the fulfillment of these verses in Christ's second advent. That in these verses we read a description of Christ's first coming, a a description of his second coming, but also in between that, something that is to characterize the church in the present interim. So consider that Glory is going to dwell in the land, verse 9, and that loving kindness and truth, or steadfast love and faithfulness, meet together. This is something that we find applied directly to Jesus in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, he describes the fulfillment of Psalm 85 in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace 
and truth, are full of steadfast love and faithfulness. That Jesus is the one in whom these qualities that God revealed at Sinai, Jesus is the one in whom these qualities of which Psalm 85 speaks come in all of their fullness. That these are not just abstract virtues, but they are most fundamentally a person who carries them out and exhibits what steadfast love, compassion, mercy, and faithfulness mean. That in Jesus Christ, the glory of God returns to the land. That after the exile and the, the glory cloud, the glory presence of God in the temple was, was removed. There was the rebuilding of the second temple, but the second temple wasn't filled with that glory cloud again. But now here in Jesus Christ, you have the return of the glory of God into the land. And the presence of that glory is characterized as the presence, the fullness of steadfast love and faithfulness. God's fullness of steadfast love and faithfulness coming to make a habitation on the earth among sinners. So we understand the first part of verse, the last part of verse 9, glory dwelling in the land, loving kindness and truth meeting together, speak of Christ. But also the last part of verse 10, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. We can understand peace as the, the fruit of people being in right relationships. As righteousness, as, as people in relationship dealing rightly with one another. And then when people deal rightly with one another, Peace, shalom, is, is the fruit and the result of that relationship. If you have the absence of righteousness, if people, just thinking on, a, on a, a human plane, if you have people who don't deal rightly with one another, you don't have peace. If you have neighbors who don't think twice about stealing or breaking into your home and taking your possessions, you're not going to be living in a peaceful neighborhood. That absence of righteousness shatters the peace, shatters the shalom. Well, with respect to mankind and God, there has been a rupture in the relationship. There has not been the righteous interaction between God's people towards God that the, the relationship demands, and that has resulted in a, a rupture of the peace. It results in anger and wrath being directed towards the people. But now at last in Christ, we have one who is the fullness of steadfast love and faithfulness and who also is the one who takes the righteousness, that righteousness which should characterize the human relationship towards God and the peace that would result from such right relationship and he makes them kiss. Through a perfect life, pleasing to God and acceptable. He secures by his righteousness the peace that flows out of being in right relationship with God. And he secures this for his people. Through his perfect life and atoning death. Again, with respect to Christ's 
First Advent, truth springs from the earth. A couple of interpretations that people have taken with respect to this verse. Some have connected it with the righteous branch that springs up. That this is a reference to the faithful one, Jesus Christ, who springs up from the earth just as the righteous branch uh, uh, springs up from the stump of Jesse. Augustine has an interesting interpretation. It's rather allegorical, but I think it's really worth considering in a serious way that it speaks of Christ's full humanity. He writes that Jesus, in being born of a virgin, takes to himself a a true human body. And Mary was descended of Adam, and Adam was taken from the earth. That Jesus had an earth-derived body. And so that when the scriptures here speak of faithfulness springing up from the earth, we can understand this not only as a personification, but as also speaking of incarnation, that the faithful one has sprung up from the earth in that he took a true body and a rational soul to himself in the incarnation. And Jesus, as the righteous one who sits enthroned above the heavens, looks down from heaven on the earth. So we can understand that this blessing, this promise of peace, finds a fulfillment in Christ's first coming. And we understand that because not only do verses 9 through 13 prophesy and speak about Christ, but so do verses 4 through 7 that the anguish that this psalm has expressed about suffering from God's indignation, that God's indignation is, is being directed towards the psalmist, speaks prophetically of the sufferings of Christ, who suffered for the iniquity of his people, who suffered for the folly of his people, that our sins were laid on him. And we can hear in these words the prophecy concerning Jesus that Jesus prays to God for salvation, to deliver himself from death, entrusting himself into the Father's care and to trust him to raise him from the dead, and also to turn his anger away from us. And it's, it's in this way that we see God's steadfast love, his, his unchanging commitment to bring mercy to his people, brought to pass, and that he puts away our sins through the sin-bearer, Jesus Christ. Now, in the present time, we can also recognize that these verses describe life in the kingdom. It it describes the, the harmonization of heaven and earth in verses 9 through 13. I've mentioned how you have this, this vertical dimension of heaven and earth reconciled to each other, resembling each other. And what you have here is, is what some have called uh, the, the heavenization of earth. That earth is meant by God to resemble heaven more and more. That Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that it's God's purpose to, to transform the earth with a heavenly quality 
uh, most uh, distinctively the, the quality of praise and worship of God. And so in these verses we have uh, a description of, of the earth uh, being reconciled to heaven. Earth exhibiting the qualities of heaven. The earth causing faithfulness to spring forth. We can understand that this is what should characterize the church in the present time. In the present, we understand that the church is, is imperfect, it, it's uh, met with sin, and yet it's called to live in a certain way. It's called to exhibit Christ-likeness. It's called to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And that in the present, the church should be exhibiting these qualities of loving kindness, faithfulness, righteousness, peace. These things should spring from the earth. And that this is the, the condition that results as God's people seek to live faithfully before him, live, live in covenant with him in a faithful manner. But we have in verse 8 a warning. God will speak peace to his people, but let them not turn back to folly. That there's this, this possibility of interrupting God's plan of peace. And the thing that interrupts it is, is human folly, human unfaithfulness, a turning away from the Lord back to idolatry again. Which would then lead to chastisement. And so a warning for the church in the present is if we would seek to have this, this kingdom quality of life among us, we must not turn back to folly. And the warning is if we do turn back to folly, the glory could be removed. We can think about what it would be like for the glory to be removed in our own present context from our land. The anticipation is that glory will dwell in the land, but if the people's folly sets up an obstruction that will be delayed, what would it be like for this land, for Columbus, for Ohio, even the United States, what would it look like for it to lose the glory? You might ask, well, there, there is no uh, glory in the way that this psalm speaks of in this land. Uh, the United States is not God's covenant people in the way that Israel was under the Old Testament, that this is with the church. But isn't there a glory that does inhabit this land in as much, there, that there are, in as, much as there are pulpits that preach the gospel? In as much as there are pulpits in which there are ambassadors sent from God who plead with sinners to be reconciled to him? Isn't the proclamation of the gospel in a land a glorious thing? And what could be a more severe and a more dreaded chastisement for a land than for its gospel-preaching pulpits to be silenced? What is the worst chastisement or the most painful chastisement that God could give to a land? Is it a pandemic? Is it a famine? Is it persecution? Or is it the silencing 
of the gospel? Is it the taking away of a lampstand? Is it the taking away of churches that testify to Jesus as the Savior? And so we must not turn back to folly. As God's people, we, we, we must shun idolatrous ways. But if we would seek to taste something of heaven on earth, we must endeavor to live rightly before God in this covenant relationship that he has established with us through his son. So that if we seek after folly, that the Lord in his chastisement may remove the glory. And how many churches are there already which you could go visit and you could attend there for a year and you would never once hear the gospel preached. And so a caution to us, let us not turn back to folly. Let us uh, live as those who fear the Lord, that we may enjoy uh, the, these covenant blessings that are described in the, the last part of our psalm. And finally, let us consider how this last uh, portion of the psalm will find yet even future fulfillment at Christ's return, where we will see heaven and earth uh, truly harmonized and reconciled, married together, in which Christ's kingdom will be consummated, in which there will be no more unrighteousness, no more unfaithfulness, no more injustice, and no more rupture of peace but that all of life in every aspect, that the redeemed humanity will be perfectly characterized by a kingdom quality, a perfect relationship with the Lord and a perfect relationship with one another, that all of our dealings will be in faithfulness as God has dealt faithfully and, uh, and mercifully with us, we will deal faithfully with one another in all things, that there will only be right interactions between one another. And that even there will be a, a, a transformation of the earth itself as it yields its produce. That we will uh, enjoy uh, uh, whatever the quality of the new creation will be like. We will enjoy it. We will most preeminently Enjoy our Savior. That righteousness will go before him and make, a, uh, make his way, uh, make, foot, make a way for his footsteps. That glory will dwell in Emmanuel's land. And that we will find the consummation of this lovely description of God dwelling among his people. That from every side we will be met by steadfast love and faithfulness. By every side we'll be met by righteousness and peace. By every side we will be met with a truth springing up from the ground and righteousness looking down from heaven. But most of all, we will be met with the presence of our God whose footsteps have been made away by the righteousness that was prepared before him by his son, Jesus Christ. And even in his church, transformed by the spirit into the likeness of Christ. And that glory will dwell on the earth. 
Let us look forward to that time, even as we may at times find ourselves still calling out from verses 4 through 7, how long, O Lord? Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the life of heaven, which has come down to earth in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that delightful prospect that we will enjoy that heavenly life forever, and that even now we have a taste of it. In the gospel of your Son, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who communicates to us what belongs to Christ, and we pray for the further advancement of your Spirit's work within our hearts and lives. We pray, Father, that indeed your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.